Hi everybody, it's Ben from Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy. Uh, just a quick production note before our upcoming episode. Uh, we once again are having some technical problems uh, with the sound quality. Uh, we had tried to combine two microphones into a single track, one on uh, uh, a single stereo track, one on each channel. Although that did work, uh, Kirk's microphone has a hiss shield and mine did not. So mine overloaded. I thought I had adjusted for that. The wave looked fine in Audacity, but upon listening to it, it's uh, pretty, pretty Pretty hollow uh, and um, and uh, overloads frequently. So sorry about that. We're working on it. We'll figure it out. We're not sound engineers. We're doing the best we can. But uh, just wanted to let you know about that in advance, so that when you listen to this, you aren't sitting there wondering if we're crazy people who can't hear how it sounds. We can. We're working on it. Appreciate your patience, and I uh, hope you enjoy this new episode. Thanks. Welcome to a lawyer's guide to the galaxy, a podcast about geek culture by lawyers, with your hosts Ben Siders and Kurt Damon. And welcome back to A Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy, the podcast that asks interesting questions that don't have any answers. With your host, Ben Siders, that's me. And the other guy is Kirk Damon. That's Kirk Damon, the captain of the Enterprise. We're intellectual property lawyers and certified geeks in the same room practicing law in St. Louis, Missouri. <laughs> you can find me, Ben, on Twitter, at Benjamin Siders, and you can find Kirk at KirkDMN. You can follow this podcast on Twitter at LGGPod. And this information is on our new and improved website, LGGPodcast.com, which also has our new branding. That's all. Yes, it does indeed. Of course, I have to worry. Should we, I should be saying we are in the same room? I mean, that's, you know, the concern here is, one, that's going to sound a little dated in the future, but secondly, yeah. are people going to be worried about that, you know, in the current time period? <laughs> so if, if you're not sure why that matters, we're recording this on uh, September 7th. It should uh, be released in about a week or two. Uh, we are sort of still in the pandemic. I guess we're still in the pandemic. We're still we in the pandemic. We definitely Delta, are. Delta's starting to fall, I think. Yeah. Yeah, uh, so we're, we're definitely in the pandemic, uh, and, and but you know, Kirk and I are both coming back to the office, and uh, although, as I, as I mentioned before, it's been a little tricky to get us um, together, so um, we're both happy to be in the same room together, and we have a, a what I hope is a new and improved sound setup, where we <laughs> each actually have our own microphone, and we're not shouting into this giant, uh, giant <laughs> box with no acoustic shielding. <laughs> exactly, yes, we actually have microphones, we're not using an iPhone, well, we still are sort of using an iPhone. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, but yeah, we're, you know, we're not doing our you know modified sound room. We're just using an office with microphones here. So, so hopefully I, it works. If I've done this right, this will be our best quality recording we've done probably since... The professional studio. Yeah, yeah <laughs> since we were at Cool Fire. Um, I wonder if they're open. We should call them. Um, anyway, uh, so today we're going to talk about if... if uh, well, by now you would have heard our Rewind episode from last week, which should give you a clue about what we're talking about this week, and that is the copyright ability of a programming language. And you may be wondering, didn't we just talk about this? Did we, didn't we just talk about this? Wasn't this Google? And like, didn't we have the like, whole big episode on whether or not programming languages were patentable? Sort of, we did. Uh, we definitely talked about the Google v. Oracle case, but the issue wasn't whether the language itself was patentable. It was about uh, the API or the programming interface. And even then, it wasn't even that so much as the fact that Google had literally just cut and paste uh, the API file with all the definitions into their software. We're going to talk about something that's similar but different. <laughs> and it's a case called SAS Institute Inc. versus World Programming Limited, which is currently on appeal before the Federal Circuit from the Eastern District of Texas. And uh, the case is still up on appeal. It has not been ruled on yet. It hasn't even fully briefed yet. But we do have both the appellant's brief and the appellee's brief. Uh, and this case is starting to be talked about as the next Google v. Oracle case, yep. which it very well may 
be because Kirk and I have looked into it, and wow, this is a mess. <laughs> this is this is interesting. That's what it is, and I, I think it's important to point out. You know, one of the things with this, there is a lot of discussion in conjunction with the legal press that this may be the next Google versus Oracle case. Now, this is not surprising. It's normal that when you have a sort of a major case come down, Google versus Oracle was a major copyrightability case that wandered sort of, around for like ten years. Yeah, and and it really is sort of the first thing to get into this area. What we're now seeing is people saying, "Hey." What's the next one? How is this going to be applied? We've already had some application of Google v. Oracle, so certain cases that were already pending. Um, just to give you a little bit of background, there's been a couple cases where basically they've said, no, really, Google v. Oracle should be limited to its facts. Mm -hmm. it, it doesn't propose general, you know, new rules of fair use. Which is what they like said. That. Yeah, and that's what they said. And so, you know, we're seeing that. That's what we're seeing. But obviously, now there's the question of how far do its facts extend. It's worth noting, too, the Supreme Court can say this ruling is confined to its facts, <laughs> but that doesn't mean lower courts won't still say, yeah, but these are the exact same facts. What, yeah, exactly. They are the facts not. are similar enough that we can <laughs> treat it as the same facts. Yeah, it, it's one of those great things where it's, you know, whatever the Supreme Court says can and will be used against it in a court of law. <laughs> or against somebody. Um, yeah, against somebody. Let's <laughs> so. get into the background of this case. Um, um, this this was so a little caveat up front. Uh, the briefing in this case was over a hundred pages for the appellant. I didn't even count the appellee's uh, brief, uh, and I did. You know, obviously, we didn't read all of this. We kind of skimmed through the main argument to get the gist of the procedural posture, what the issues are, what the key key facts are. But what we're going to tell you about this case is basically what was in those briefs and a little bit of reading between the lines to the extent that we can. But we also have to caveat that, unlike the Google v. Oracle case, where both Kirk and I are a little more familiar with Java, um, we're not at all familiar with, with this program. Yeah. So the amount of depth we can get into here is probably more limited on the technical side. Uh, but this case does present um, some really fascinating procedural questions, the kind of thing that we don't get into too often on this podcast, but we probably should get into more. Yeah, we probably should. It's the, the, One of the key things to keep in mind about this case is this case is mostly technical arguments and procedure arguments. And it's one of those things where we don't get into that a lot in, in our podcast. And in fact, the vast majority, I would say, with legal press and legal analysis that's geared to anything other than, you know, procedure lawyers and litigators yep. doesn't get into it all, really, at all. And part of the reason for it is, is it's kind of boring. Well, it's um, also kind of hard to understand. Yeah. <laughs> if you don't really understand, you know, what what difference does it make, whether it was dismissed at the pleading stage or after yeah. discovery or on summary judgment or on a JNOV, you know, most of you probably don't know what any of that is if you're not lawyers. Those of you who are lawyers are nodding sagely while you sip your tea and saying, <laughs> yes, yes. Because when you practice law, especially in litigation, the case is all about, one, who has the burden? And two, what's the standard yeah. of proof? Uh, and, and when you appeal things, that's what you're looking at, is, is those two issues, and you're hammering on those standards of proof. And really, we do this in patent law, too. The examiner bears the, bears the burden of proving that it's not patentable. And if it's if they can't prove that, you win. At least yeah. that's how it's supposed to work, you know? Yeah, and that's uh, one of the real big things about this is, and it's just interesting because I'll just mention sort of personal experience. The very first class I went to in law school was my civil procedure class. Um, and the very first thing we did, you know, was read our case in our case book. You know, when you, when you go to law school, you learn, you learn by reading cases or excerpts of cases. And then oftentimes there's a small analysis of it, but it, it, a lot of times you're just reading the case and sort of trying to pull things out of it around a general principle. And I still remember like reading through my first case and having no real idea exactly what it meant, grabbing my Black's Law Dictionary and going, okay, decided on summary judgment. What the heck is summary it's judgment? one of the first things you learn and you have no idea what it is. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And you know, reading through it and going like, okay, this doesn't make any sense to me. Like, what is this? And that was, that was the point of the case was to sort of understand what summary judgment was about. Um, and, you know, what does it mean to analyze something on summary judgment? Uh, summary judgment is basically a decision before it ever gets to a jury is the easiest way to describe it. Yeah. And the determination when you have an appeals court looking at that, which, again, most of the time you're in law school, you're looking at appeals court decisions, 
is whether or not the facts were appropriate for the court to make that determination before the case went to the jury. Basically, is it clear enough that it didn't have to go to a jury? And right there, I probably already confused half the audience. Yes. <laughs> uh, and that's the idea is to sort of point out that a lot of these procedural issues, one, they can get a little boring because they do get into, you know... It's dry and technical. So if you're yeah. into dry technical things, if you're the kind of person that really wants to understand how a warp drive works in Star Trek, this episode is for you. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, if you're the person who's wondering, you know, exactly how you warp space um, and things like that. But the, the other thing you really get into with it is it is hyper-technical. It's sort of like discussing the nature of a warp drive without having a degree in physics. Um, you know, if I start getting into, you know, hey, here's, you know, quantum anomalies and sort of things like that, it all sounds very good. It sounds like fun buzzwords, but you're not necessarily going to understand it. And that's unfortunately one of the things you get into primarily with procedure um, at the legal level. And, and as much as it is, procedure does dominate legal analysis. It really does. It, it dominates real legal analysis. It's really glossed over a lot in the media. There is, as of right now, a lot of media discussion about a recent uh, anti-abortion statute that was enacted in Texas. Uh, the Supreme Court was asked on its emergency docket to enjoin that law, and they declined for purely procedural reasons. They said the case wasn't ripe and it wasn't standing for the people who were uh, sued to enforce it because of how the case was drafted. If you read the media, it sounds like the Supreme Court ruled on the law and said it's fine. That's not what they said. They said the opposite. They said, we are declining to issue any ruling on the merits, but that nuance gets lost in reporting yeah. because it's a procedural decision that's actually not that interesting. Yeah, and the vast majority of procedural decisions are very interesting to lawyers, but they don't get, they literally don't get to the merits of the case. I mean, you're talking about something where they have So the example is like in patent law, we can readily have one where we send a case up to appeal, and the argument is, is the examiner didn't actually do his job. It's not whether or not the case should be patentable. We're simply arguing the examiner didn't do his job to say it wasn't. Yep. Uh, and so we'll occasionally get as an appeals court look at it and say, you're correct. The examiner didn't do his job. And they'll send it back to the examiner and say, do your job. Uh, at which point in time, you may say, well, I agree with what I did previously. And you're still not patentable. That, that's yeah, a pretty that's acceptable fine. sort yeah. of, you know, follow up in conjunction with this. Now, we obviously usually don't approve of that and we'll continue to appeal it. But it's one of those things where you really have to understand that procedure is all about did the court do it where the rules followed? Yeah. We have rules for the orderly administration of justice, and we need to follow them at all stages, because if not, then you get sloppiness and messiness, and that's what we're going to find in this case. So let's get into the background facts. The plaintiff uh, slash appellant, that's the person filing the appeal, is a company called SAS Institute, and they created something they call the SAS System, which, as best I can tell, is basically a collection of software products for performing um, pretty hard-hitting statistical analysis. Uh, they really emphasize in their briefing that it took millions of, of work hours by thousands of statisticians and programmers over the course of many years to produce this thing. Um, and it's a little unusual in that you don't, you don't click on things. It doesn't have a graphical user interface. To, uh, to use it, you, you have to define the inputs. You've got to tell it using this special uh, formatted language um, what, uh, what the inputs are and what you want it to do. And to do that, you format the input a certain way. You use certain keywords. Um, you, there's you know, spacing requirements, indexing requirements. And based on the keywords, on some user-defined variables, and the order in which they appear, the system then runs the uh, various statistical analysis uh, that it's programmed to produce. And then it generates a report or some output. And the magic behind the scenes that actually does all of the math is invisible to the user. The user just needs to know how to use the correct format for the inputs, and the programming logic does the rest. Well, the defendant, World Programming Limited, or also called WPL throughout the, uh, the briefings, basically copied the input formatting. Uh, they wrote a program that could do the same math uh, using the same type of input format, 
uh, and then the output formats are also similar, effectively creating a clone written from scratch. Um, at least there's no allegations to the contrary. Yep. But a clone that is a functionally equivalent, uses the same input format, produces the same output formats. Uh, they got sued over this. Uh, in several cases. There was one set of cases back in the uh, late 2000s, uh, one in the UK, uh, and then one here. Uh, SAS won in this case and got a judgment for, I think, $80 million, which, as far as I can tell, WPL has uh, never paid. Maybe they have. I just couldn't find any facts on that. But uh, SAS really emphasized a lot in their briefings that they won and didn't get paid. So <laughs> yeah. I, I assume that, uh, that maybe they never did. Um, then in 2018, SAS sued again, asserting new copyright claims and seeking new damages. It's also important to, to note in this, and I believe from the things, we, we talked about there were European and U.S. cases. SAS won in the U.S., but the case was actually dismissed in Europe. Yeah, correctly. the European case, uh, I believe they raised the question of whether they could have a copyright on what was allegedly infringed at all, and the European court said, uh, no, no, not under European law. Um, it's not clear to me if that came up in the U.S. case and was decided or was withdrawn as part of the case, but in any event, I believe they won on a statutory ground, unfair business practices, something along those lines. So this new case in 2018 is asserting new copyright claims that may arise out of uh, newer versions that are now being infringed. It wasn't clear to me from the briefings why uh, the, the how the new claims differ. Um, but the, the real dispute centers around a hearing that the trial court held on the subject of, quote-unquote, copyrightability. Um, the, the key issue was that in order to assess whether there is infringement and if there was, how much the damages are, uh, with software, you have to sort of, um, extract from the software, the parts that are not actually copyrightable, uh, with a lot of copyrighted works, not every part of it is copyrightable or copyrighted, which are two different things. Yep. Um, uh, but then uh, there's also the question of, of finding out what is and whether it was infringed or not. And uh, that seems to be the thrust of the dispute. The parties vigorously disagree on what exactly happened at that <laughs> hearing, what the point of it was, what the court held, and more importantly, who had the burden of establishing what. Yep, and that's let's, let's get into this thing of burden. And that's, again, one of these sort of fascinating legal concepts that you get into, which is what's called burden of proof. Uh, I think we've gotten into this in prior episodes before. We did. I think our Star Wars film episode, we covered that with yep. the uh, the Adat Walkers. Yep. And and the real thing we've got in this is basically the question of who has the burden of proof in this case. A lot of times the reason burden of proof gets argued about is because figuring out what actually happened is is essentially impossible. And so whoever has the burden is going to lose. Um, and that's sort of <laughs> the, the thing the a lot of times you get into is whoever has to prove something is going to lose because neither party can prove anything. Um, and so that's where, you know, it seems like this case is really getting into is a lot of that sort of procedural issue of who has the burden of proof. But here it's very important because what we're talking about is copyrightability. So we're talking about, is there something copyrightable in this software? And if so, what is it? Um, and then who has the obligation to show either what is copyrightable, um, or that something is not copyrightable, um. Yeah, and then in this hearing, um, so what happened at the hearing is both parties showed up. They both, you know, put forth their experts. Some were allowed to testify, some weren't. Uh, and then the court ruled that SAS had failed to establish uh, or, or had failed to identify what was the protectable expression in their program that had been infringed. And so that was it. And the case was dismissed with prejudice. Yep. Uh, SAS appealed on that point, and they raised a number of issues. We're going to focus on one of them. Here's the issues. They argued that, one, the court improperly shifted the burden of proof to SAS on copyrightability, which is contrary to the presumption of validity you get for a copyrighted work. Yep. Uh, they Two, that the court did not conduct what's called the filtration analysis correctly. We'll get into that in a little bit later. 
uh, and then, and then uh, accordingly, improperly dismiss the case without following the federal rules of civil procedure. Uh, three, on the merits, they argue that the material is copyrightable. That's probably the most fun issue, but also <laughs> I think the Google v. Oracle case is going to cause some trouble for them there. And then for, the fourth issue we're not going to talk about, which is that the court had also improperly excluded certain uh, expert witness testimony. Uh, we're going to set that aside for now. So this is, this so is that, a lot to unpack. It's an evidence issue, so basically as to a question as to exactly what can be considered as evidence and what can be introduced. We're not going to get into it because the fact that that unpacks a whole other pack of worms. Yeah. Um, so a whole huge body of law. Their entire shelves of libraries are devoted to when you can strike expert <laughs> testimony and when you can't. Yeah. <laughs> So we're going we're gonna to focus, we're going to talk about two things. Uh, I think we're going to talk a lot about the procedural posture. Um, and that may sound boring, but bear with us. I think you're going to find this interesting. Uh, and there's a couple of reasons for that. One is um, the distinction between procedure and substance uh, is, uh, I'd say, widely overlooked, uh, widely unappreciated, as we mentioned in the introduction. Uh, and we just talked about that Texas case that is, is currently officially the law of Texas, but um, you know, who knows how long that's going to last. So, you know, once somebody finds a defendant, they can actually sue. I would expect a court to <laughs> the, enjoin that law. The issue you got here is in just briefly as to what it is, what they call case or controversy. Yeah. And so basically what it is, is, is there actually a case or controversy for the court to resolve? And basically the court said in this case, there is not because the law has not been applied. Yeah, this is a, this is a part of federal jurisdiction. The, the jurisdiction of the Supreme Court is defined by the Constitution in Article 3. It's, it's actually pretty limited. And early on in the Republic, I think uh, President Washington had actually written a letter to the Supreme Court and said, hey, we're thinking of passing this law. Is this constitutional or not? And the court wrote back and said, uh, case or controversy. We only have jurisdiction over live cases and controversies. We can't give you what's called a, a non-justiciable opinion or yeah. uh, you know something like that. We have to have an actual set of facts in front of us to decide the case on. And this gave rise to a whole bunch of others. It's called standing. Do you have standing to sue or not? Yeah. I could I could sue Kirk right now to enjoin my taxes being uh, being assessed against me. Well, Kirk's not the proper defendant. <laughs> he doesn't have any authority to enforce the tax yeah. laws. I would have to sue the director of the IRS or the Treasury or somebody like that, you have to sue the person who's actually enforcing the law. Uh, the Texas case is weird because it specifically says nobody in the government has any authority to enforce it. Well, okay, well then who do you sue? Yeah. <laughs> who, do you, who do you enjoin from enforcing the law? You have to wait until somebody tries to enforce it. Now, so. one thing that's important to note in conjunction with this is, you know, a lot of law is drafted by lawyers and they know this. Um, and so, you know, there's ways that they try to write laws sometimes to avoid courts having jurisdiction. Oh, and that's exactly what happened here. <laughs> yeah, it's exactly what happened here. And there's also, I think it's just to get to Ben's point and gloss over a little bit the initial thing behind this, a lot of where this originally came from was the idea of sending essentially draft legislation to the courts with, and asking the courts, should you know, is this appropriate law? Um, this is after the court had established itself as being able to determine whether or not laws met the Constitution, um, that the, you know, the Supreme Court was the ultimate arbitrator of whether or not a law could be passed. Um, what you had is you had you know, Congress and the president stuff sending up laws and saying, well, here's a draft law. Is this appropriate? And, and basically, the, 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 I think the Supreme Court kind of looked at it and said, we don't want to be making that decision. Yeah. We need you guys to basically pass the law. Then we'll decide whether or not what you passed is acceptable as a yes-no basis. And it's a very important point of procedure because what they're saying here is once the law is passed, we can tell you it's wrong or it's okay. We can't tell you ahead of time what we're going to say. 
Yeah, because you don't know that. what the facts are going to be yeah. either. And they, uh, by a little bit, a little more background on that. During the Philadelphia Convention, I believe one of the delegates had proposed a system where the Supreme Court would have been involved with the drafting process or the veto process, and all those proposals were rejected. Which I think is part of why the court early on was like, no, no, no. The the, fr- the founders thought about that, and they decided we're not going to do it that way. So we're only going to look at it after the fact. You can debate whether that was a good idea or not, but that's yeah. the system we have. That is the system we have. And so what you really have is you have this need of basically the law has to be applied to a particular fact situation. Then the court decides, does it apply to that fact as applied to that fact situation? You know, is the law appropriate? Is it constitutional stuff along those lines? So what we really have in conjunction with a lot of these scenarios is a determination of is the court have does the court have standing? Does the court have the yep. ability to actually look at the these issues? Now that body of law has obviously, you know, this is one of the earliest cases in Supreme Court jurisprudence. I mean, it's within, yep. almost certainly within the first year. It might even be within the first month um, of, you know, the court actually, you know, t- taking cases. So we, we've got a lot of jurisprudence as what comprises a case or controversy, what comprises standing, what gives you the ability to go in front of a specific court. A perfect example in conjunction with this is what's called a final ruling when we're talking about an appeals court. In order for an appeals court to decide something, the decision of the lower court has to be done. It has to be final. Yeah, you have to have a judgment. Mm-hmm. You have to have a judgment that they can review. And so what you oftentimes bump into in some procedural settings is you'll have a case where, hey, they get halfway through the court, the court case, and you know the court decides something one of the two parties doesn't like, and then they just agree that the decision based upon this will be X, so that we can now take up yep. the, that one issue and say, we need the court to look at it. If that's the ruling, this is the ultimate ruling in the end, which is negative towards one of the parties. They basically agree we're going to lose in the event that this, part, this yeah. ruling is this way. We seem to get it in front of an appellate court right away. Yeah, we need yeah. to get it in front of an appellate court right away. Which happened in that Texas case, by the way. The Fifth Circuit uh, had the appeal, and they it's called an interlocutory appeal, where you don't actually have a final decision from the lower court, but you argue that there's some some urgent uh, reason why it should be looked at now. And that's how yeah. I got in front of the Supreme Court docket. So anyway, now, this from a final judgment in the current case. This, yeah, the yet. current case is, and we're gonna we're gonna dive into this the te- the the, the uh, procedure for a couple of reasons. You know, people often hear this like, oh, he, you know, you hear like in criminal law that somebody got off on a technicality, yep. you know. And I, I think there's like a, a widespread misperception of what technicalities are in the law. Usually, when people say technicality, what they just mean is the rules. I mean, we, <laughs> we, we have rules, and you have to follow them. You know, a technicality would be like your lawyer put the staple in the wrong corner, and so the whole brief was dismissed. There aren't very many courts that have technicality rules like that. You know, your font's the wrong size, yeah. so you lose. Almost always in a situation like that, they just send it back to fix whatever the, the true technicality is, and things go on. Now, we, interestingly enough, actually have this in patent law a lot because there's what's called Section 112 in the patent law, which is effectively the technicalities of what a patent needs to have. Um, and so the example is font size and margins um, and things like that. You can actually get you know a, an examiner come back and say, hey, your font size is wrong or your margins are wrong. What you usually bump into is your claim numbering is wrong. You skipped yeah. a number. Um, that's a technicality. And the problem with it is, is that it does come back. Now, usually what you get is you get a notice saying, Fix, fix it. the technicality, <laughs> you know, so that we can actually consider it as to what it is. And that's what mostly happens when you hear true technicalities, that's usually what it is. Yep. Where you hear about it in criminal law is usually in evidence. That's yeah. usually sort of where, where you're It's almost always in rules. criminal procedure, the, yeah. the, the jail to bail part, not the criminal civil pro- or criminal trial procedure, but uh, investigative detective, the, the crime drama stuff. Yep. Um, that, you know, those aren't technicalities, those are constitutional rights. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're constitutional rights instead of what it is. And a lot of it's because, and it's, I always remember from my evidence professor talking about this, the reason you have those rules and the reason that they get enforced the way they do uh, is because if they're not 
not, people will stop following them. And they're yep. there to, in order to protect constitutional rights, you know, whatever it might be. And so when, when, when we're really talking here, when we're talking about technicalities, what we're now talking about is elements of procedure. Now, that's not to say there aren't cases that are dismissed on purely procedural grounds. There are people who have had cases dismissed because they get the margins on the brief wrong and don't fix them. Um, you know, that, that does happen usually to pro se applicants. Um, but it's one of those things where you need to recognize that, you know, the, the rules are here because they feel the need that, that have these proceedings be carried out in a certain way. Particularly in federal court where they, they want things to be done consistently case after case. Yeah. Uh, and we have an, an, a whole set of, of rules of civil procedure, which the, the federal courts try pretty hard to follow. If you've ever practiced law, uh, you know that the state courts have a, a, a somewhat more laissez-faire attitude about procedure. <laughs> uh, but the federal courts are pretty strict about it because they've got a lot of casework to do and they want to get through these cases. Um, so in this case, you know, one of the reasons we're going to harp on this is that this case is, is really a procedural case. And um, sort of like the Texas case, one of the things that, that we want to accomplish today is to help you understand what the procedural issues are so that if this case is remanded or reversed on the, uh, the basis of who has the burden of proof, uh, you understand what's going on and you understand the difference between a procedural remand and a substantive remand. Yep. I think it's unlikely we're going to get a substantive remand here because once they decide who has the burden properly, they may have to go back and redo the trial to, yeah. to then retry the case based on that burden. Let everybody take a second crack at it. Now, this is actually the second time in just recent episodes we have harped on technicalities. We actually harped on it in the TSR discussion. Yes. Um, that was another case we sort of harped on technicalities with it. But I think the, the real key of the reason we're harping on is exactly what Ben just said, harping on the technicalities here is it is unlikely that we're going to get a substantive decision from this court. We're going to get a technicality decision that's going to affect the substantive. Yep. But it's going to be, it's going to need us to go back to the trial court and redetermine what the actual substantive facts are. Basically, the, the, what's going to happen primarily in this case, we think, you know, based upon it, um, is we're going to have a determination that something was done wrong or was done correctly, depending on how we want to look at it, at the lower court. If it was done wrong, we have to go back and do it again to get it right. Yep. Now, if it was done right, okay, then it's done right, and we can move on, you know, with whatever. It Seems to be, be the least likely outcome here. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it does seem like there's a lot of technicalities here, and so yep. there's a, a good chance that something will be found to have been done wrong. What we want you to be prepared for is that this case gets reversed and sent back, and I just want you to not be uh, uh, led astray by hyperventilating press reports over how the Google v. Oracle decision is being thwarted now by, by whatever <laughs> circuit this is. I forget where this is at. Um, anyway, so the, the, this is all going to boil down to really the burden of proof, which has two different components. There's the burden of production and the burden of persuasion. Uh, the burden of production is who has the obligation to actually present proof. And in almost every legal dispute in the United States, at least, the person who files the lawsuit has to prove their case. The defendant doesn't actually have to do anything. You could literally just sit there throughout the entire trial, never adduce any evidence, never uh, cross, uh, cross a witness, nothing. You could just sit there the entire time. If you're plaintiff does not prove their case, the defendant wins. Well, you yep. can do nothing and you still win. We do occasionally see this in legal dramas involving cr involving criminal behavior. Yep. Because in, in, remember, it's the plaintiff that usually has to produce it. The state is the plaintiff in all, in all criminal cases. <laughs> so the prosecutor, you'll occasionally see a case where basically they'll do it in a legal drama where, you know, the, the, the state will present their case. The defendant will do nothing and say, hey, the state has failed to prove their case. Uh, and that is perfectly acceptable. Yep. Um, that's, you know, and it's, it's not that uncommon, especially in criminal cases. And we're going to get into why criminal cases are relevant here. Um, you can't compel the defendant to testify yeah. in a criminal case. So um, you're often deciding all of these criminal cases through indirect evidence, which is going to become relevant uh, in a copyright infringement case as well. The, uh, 
the the one major exception to this uh, burden of uh, well, let's, it's not the burden of production. Let's talk about the burden of persuasion. The burden of persuasion is how good does your proof have to be? Yep. In a civil trial, it's called preponderance of the evidence. You have to prove that it's more likely than not the case that the evidence establishes that what you said happened happened yep. and that it's unlawful. Uh, in a criminal trial, it's it's beyond any reasonable doubt. And then there's a, a middle standard called clear and convincing evidence that nobody really knows what it means, <laughs> but it means more than the first one and less, less than the, the second. second. <laughs> yeah, and it's mostly only you sort of put when you say what what is you know the, the standard in a case like this. The way I you'll put it is it's 51% likely this person wins because yeah. it's as soon as you get one side having you know a a a preponderance of the evidence that goes one direction um, than the other, that side wins. So we kind of look at it and say, as soon as somebody is 51% likely to win, they have the preponderance because the other side has less. Yep. Uh, so that's a lot of times the way it's looked at. Whereas people oftentimes say, okay, the clear and convincing is more like 75%, you know, beyond a reasonable doubt, it's 90%. You know, th- th- those are kind of weird statements in the thing. Yeah. But definitely this is a case where the, the mathematics makes some sense. It's basically one of you has to be more, who is more likely to be right. And that's yep. sort of what we just look at is who is more likely to be right. And like I said, 51% is what we're talking about. So the one time when the defendant does have the burden of proof is when the defendant is asserting what's called an affirmative defense. That's where you say, even if you're right, um, for, for various reasons, I still win as the defendant. Uh, in criminal law, this would be like a self-defense a self uh, defense defense. justification. So you're being tried for murder. The state has the burden to prove that you had all of the elements of murder. Uh, whatever, however it's defined by statute. Uh, if you argue self-defense, you're basically saying, even if you can prove all that, I shouldn't be held responsible because I can prove self-defense. And I don't remember what the formulation is offhand, but I think that you have to have both a subjective and objectively reasonable belief that your life is in immediate, uh, you know, moral danger. Yeah. Depends on the state. I mean, it's, you yeah, know, exactly it varies from it state for, by state. For self-defense. But again, yeah, the key to it is, is that, you know, in order to prove, you know, that an example is in order to prove that somebody, you know, did commit a murder, just as a simple piece, you need to prove that somebody is dead. Dead. Yes. Um, you know, that's a necessity of the plaintiff to prove. The The idea behind self-defense is saying, even if you can prove somebody is dead, there is a reason yeah. that even they are can, dead that has yeah. nothing to do with me murdering them. Yeah, even if you can prove that, I, that, that, that you know, the, the, the defendant killed them, right? There's homicide, which means you killed somebody. Then yeah. there's murder, which is a, crim- a crime. Yeah, homicide is not always a crime. <laughs> that's one of those things that actually that always bothers me when you hear stuff on the news is the fact that murder, basically, if you say somebody has committed a murder, it effectively means they've been found guilty of it. Yeah. Somebody has committed a homicide simply means somebody is dead dead and it believed the other person killed them. Yep. <laughs> so um, the reason why in criminal cases there's always this harping on procedure and evidence is because you can't make the defendant testify. And um, it's there's you know there's often no witnesses. So you're left with what we call so you can you can prove a case through direct evidence, which is like um, you know, I have a video of you killing the guy. Okay, so yeah. we know what happened. Uh, and then you can also prove cases through circumstantial evidence, which is how most criminals uh, yeah. cases, especially murders, especially salacious murders, are are um, handled because there's often no direct evidence because the only two people who were there, one is dead, one can't be compelled to testify. So yeah. all you can do is fingerprints and footprints and all this forensic science is about circumstantial evidence. Yeah. And where's evidence. the murder weapon found? It exactly. isn't the murder weapon. And you know, Does it match the wounds on the body? <laughs> is there signs of a struggle? Blah, blah, blah. So if you've ever watched like a Netflix docuseries on a, on a homicide, <laughs> you know all this stuff. Uh, oddly enough, copyright infringement is very similar because, not that it's a moral equivalent <laughs> of murder, um, but the way that you prove it is similar because there is often not direct evidence of copyright infringement. It's rare that you have an email that says, oh, hey, we're just, going to copy this. Yeah, I just saw Lord of the Rings. Write the exact same thing. You know, and that, yeah. that doesn't happen, you know? So, 
or improving copyright infringement, you know, I often hear in, in criminal cases, we want to establish motive and opportunity. Those are not the elements of the crime. It's just the story you tell so that you can explain why somebody would have committed the murder and why the circumstantial evidence proves it. Copyright is kind of the same thing. You don't. Have, I mean, the motive is obvious, profit, uh, but the opportunity is, uh, did you have access to the original? Had you seen it before? Because yep. if not, you can't have copied it. Um, and then also, uh, substantial similarity is the thing that is accused to have a friend infringed substantially similar to the copyright. To actually board. be a copy. Yeah, and that's basically how that that analysis usually goes. It's all done uh, through circumstance. So, in uh, a copyright infringement case, the plaintiff who owns the copyright they have the burden to one prove that they actually have a copyright. Uh, that's usually easy. You have a certificate from the copyright office with a number on it that says you have a copyright. And, and the key about that is, is that establishes uh, what's called a presumption of validity, which is basically that the the court is now supposed to presume that you do indeed have yeah. a copyright by the fact that the copyright office has granted you one. Yep. Now, if that doesn't necessarily mean that it is indeed a copyright, it's possible because the copyright office doesn't do a lot of substantive examination. They'll look over the work and the and the and the, uh, the example. You have to it's called a deposit. You have to make a deposit of what the work is. They'll look at it. You know, if I if I if I submit a copy of Harry Potter and I say that it's mine, they're probably going to figure that out, right? And say, no, yeah. that's <laughs> that's not yours. You can't have that. Um, but if I you know if I submit something that just looks on its face like an original work, they're not going to go ask me to submit. You know, uh, additional evidence proving how I made it. It's going to take my word for it. Yep. Um, and, and there's a reason for that. It would cost a fortune to do that for every case. So instead, they figure we'll just do that for the cases where there's actually a dispute over the copyright ownership. That'll happen at trial. So you're entitled to a presumption of validity as to your copyright, but that does not mean that it is definitely valid. Yep. And one of the affirmative defenses that the defendant can raise is that you do not actually have a valid copyright. Uh, so normally, the burden of proof to prove the copyright uh, is normally satisfied by having the certificate, and then the burden shifts to the defendant to prove, no, you don't, or yep. to say, not everything that's in that certificate is copyrighted. And that's kind of what happened here. That is what and, happened here, yeah. And so, you know, what we're talking about when we say this burden shifting is basically the idea that says now it shifts to the other side to prove what they need to prove. So basically, it shifts to the other side to prove you aren't, you don't have a copyright, and or you aren't entitled to a copyright in conjunction with this. But just to keep in mind, you can have it shift. They can then prove something, and you have it shift back. Yeah, that and does happen. You can happen. have it shift back again. <laughs> like that's a normal thing, you know. That occasionally, in these work, can shift back and forth behind it. Um, the the whole dispute as to who invented the telephone, um, Alexander Graham Bell <laughs> and Elijah Gray, is actually a burden of proof issue and a shifting burden of proof issue. If you actually want to get into it, maybe we'll get into that in some future yeah. podcast episode. Yeah. So uh, what? So there's a number of things that you have to pull out of this analysis, and one of so what. What the arguments were at this copyrightability hearing that, that generated all of this dispute was that uh, it's what we call this uh, filtration step. We have to filter out of computer software all the pieces that are not copyrightable. This would be things like functional matter, um, you know, ideas and processes can't be copyrighted. And then you've got various copyright doctrines uh, called uh, merger and sans affair, which I think sans affair we've talked about. Merger basically says that the function and the expression are so uh, inextricably intertwined that they can't be separated. The expression yeah. is the function, and therefore the expression also is not copyrightable. A, a good example of that is the plus sign. Mm -hmm. We we all that that's an individual symbol which we could look at and say is a symbol is copyrightable, but its meaning is so tied to what it is. We all know exactly what it means. That the, the merger is is combined with you know yep. the plus sign is at this point in time not something which is not copyrightable because it means addition as a concept. 
Then you've also got sans affair, which is a doctrine that holds that the elements of expression that are rudimentary, obligatory, or just necessary in order to express an idea are also not copyrightable. So, for example, if I'm going to draw a picture of a bear, for example, um, it's going to have to have certain elements that make it look like a bear. Otherwise, yeah. you won't be able to tell what it is. It's got to have ears and eyes and a nose and, and certain uh, body dimensions. Uh, the fact that any two expressions of a bear both have those things, you ignore all that. It's really, what, what are the artistic elements of the bear, not the things that you have to have? Yeah. And we also often see this in, in bigger narratives like a, a spy drama. Well, if there's a spy drama, then there's going to be a villain. There's going to be technology. There's going to be all these plot points. There's going to be double agents. The mere fact that two stories have these things are all just sans affair. They're all just part of the, the background elements that necessarily define that type of yeah. work. A good example of it, uh, and the one I'd use, is in science fiction, you tend to have some form of advanced laser weaponry. Yes. You know, <laughs> now what you call it, you know, whether it's a phaser, whether it's a turbo laser, you know, Death things star. like that. You know, th those are all things you get into is those could potentially be copyrightable, but the fact that it is laser-based weaponry, it's light-based weaponry, is not something that's that's copyrightable. That's, that's sans affair and you have it. Similarly, if you're talking about fantasy, hey, the person uses a sword you know uh, okay you know your your sword is the fact that they're using a sword is not copyrightable now in a movie the specific sword they use may be copyrightable because it may be considered an artistic work it may appear in a certain way at the same time a sword has a blade the fact that it has a blade does not make it yep. copyrightable so you can see sort of where it is as you get into these things and, and it, this can get very difficult in conjunction especially with, with computer software where yes. you have a lot of, of non-protectable elements so the, the copyright here, remember, this is going to sound like the Google v. Oracle case. In that case, the issue was copying the API, or what I call the header files, which defined the name of the method, what variables you send it, what type of variables they are, and then what, what you can expect to get back. So, for example, if I write a method called you know, math.cosine, um, I have to tell the computer, what is it going to get? Am I going to give it an angle, in, which is an integer? Am I going to give it uh, a measure of radians, which would be a decimal number? And then what am I going to get back? Presumably a decimal number because it's a cosine. Um, but you know, I, I could write it differently. You could you could make it. You know, I could pass it coordinates or something like that, or I could I define a class called an angle and pass it that. So uh, in that in the Google v Oracle case, Google had had um, had not copied the code that actually implements the functions. It just copied the definitions uh, from the API. In in this case, what we have is not even that much copying. We have copying the sort of the nomenclature or the the, the uh, format, structure, might the, be the format best way of the it. input. Um, and we'll we'll put some links in the show notes here so you can see what it looks like. But it's basically just a a, a listing of numbers, like like it'll say procedure space, and then the name of the procedure, and then you know model, and then the, the type of statistical model, and then the type of variables and data that you're going to process it on. So uh, in in my mind, it's even kind of a a weaker case for the plaintiff than Google v Oracle, just based on the holding of that case. Um, but what happened? Uh, well, let's let's back up a bit. When you infringe a copyright, there's, there's two things you can infringe. You can infringe what we call the literal elements, which means I literally took the literal elements. Yeah. And we mean the actual definition of literal, not the definition that you use now, where <laughs> literal means figurative. Figuratively, yeah. yeah. But uh, the literal elements, I cut and paste things. That's what Google did. Google cut and paste uh, the literal elements of the Java API. Um, but the, the copyright, you know, the, uh, you can have copyrights in those literal elements, but you can also get a copyright uh, in... in um, the, what's called the sequence structure and organization. So a work can consist of individual elements that may or may not be copyrighted or copyrightable, uh, or maybe both. Um, but you can also get a, 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 a non-literal copyright in, in the selection and in arrangement of them, which, remember that phrase, this is going to matter for our next episode, <laughs> which is also about a similar topic, although in a completely different context. So um, 
you know, in, uh, in so the Google v. Oracle case, the literal elements of the source code in that case were not copyrightable. Nobody owns math.cosign. That's just the names of, of those things. Um, uh, the copyright was the sequence structure and organization, the non-literal elements. So to analogize, in a novel about a character named John Doe, the name of the character is a literal element. John Doe, not copyrightable. Don't, don't worry about that. Uh, but the sequence structure organization of the story is. So somebody can't just come in and rewrite the same story, change some character names and settings around and say, voila, I've done something new. A good example of a way to think about this, I always think is a good thing to, to use in conjunction with the idea of sequence organization and some of these differences, is to actually think about the nature of a first-person shooter game. Um, they have very statistical elements. Uh, and keep in mind, these are also relatively modern. I mean, first-person shooters only really came into place in like the 1990s. Um, they have very particular elements of how they're carried out that, you know, oftentimes get parodied. I always mm -hmm. remember one of the ones where they actually had like, um, I don't remember which character it was, it was Duke Nukem or something like that, but they did a YouTube video with him at home, you know, and he's like, you know, feeding his kids, you know, breakfast and, you know, his arm like jumps to the back and comes back with a thing of orange juice and then jumps back and comes back with a thing of cereal. And then jumps back and comes back with a nine millimeter, which he quickly puts away, you know, it's like, and so, you know, it's, it's kind of this like, you know, hilarious sort of, you know. Um, plays as sort of your cycling through it. You know, a lot of times those get looked at as those are those are mechanical elements, those are scenes of fair, um, those are elements which are not subject to copyrightable. At the same time, specifically what those hands show or what order they show yeah. them may become something which is, no, now we're starting to get into specific, you know, elements of that game and stuff with it. So this is a difficult thing to unpack when it comes to computer software because computer software does have an enormous number of issues um, in conjunction with you know, scenes of fair type pieces at the same time, which have very specific expression. Uh, there's a helicopter flying outside of our window right now. <laughs> I have no idea what's going on. It sounds like the Metropolitan Police are landing a helicopter on the street outside of us. So if you hear a bunch of background noise, that's why a huge flock of birds just took off in a panic. <laughs> or, or if you wonder why we suddenly sound distracted. Um, anyway, um, scenes of fair. Yeah, so uh, at, at issue in this, this SAS case, you know, one of the main points of an appeal is that the way the trial court handled this process of filtering out the non-copyrightable stuff put the burden on the, the wrong person. You know, ordinarily, like we said, the copyright owner, you have the presumption of validity, the defendant asserting affirmative defenses, such as it's not actually copyrighted, uh, has, to, has to prove that. Um, the plaintiff contends that the way that the trial court handled this in the copyright hearing effectively shifted the burden to the plaintiff to prove a copyright that, they, that the defendant had failed to rebut. So that's what the case is really all about. And this is the idea where we said shifting the burden. So basically what they said is it's the, the uh, plaintiff is coming in and saying, I have, I, I have the initial burden that I have a copyright. I have done, met that burden by presenting you with a copyright certificate. Yep. That shifts the burden to the other side to prove I don't have a copyright. And what they are effectively arguing is, no, the court said I had to prove which elements are copyrightable instead of the other side having to prove which elements are not copyrightable. Yeah, and that, that's exactly how it went down. The plaintiff says, look, we have our certificate. It's the defendant's job to do it, and they didn't. The defendant said it was not our job, and even if it was, we did. <laughs> the defendant says, oh, it was not our job. It was their job to do it, and they didn't. And the plaintiff said, well, it was not our job, and even if it was, we did. So yeah. everybody has all their bases Have covered. we confused you all now? Yeah. Um, We're not going to dig into that any further than that, because getting into that would require a lot. That, that gets into the, the expert witness issues and so forth. Um, what we want to look at more is how this is going to compare substantively to the Google v. Oracle case. Uh, and then just understanding that what the court's going to have to do here is, is really sort out who really has this burden? What is the correct analytical framework to look at this, decide who has the burden, look at the record on appeal, and if possible, untangle that and say, did the court handle this correctly? Did the person who have the burden meet it? And really, was there a fair opportunity to do that? 
Uh, if not, they may remand it to the trial court for further proceedings to redo the whole thing. They may just tell the trial court, you know what, you've got the record in front of us, we don't. Retry it, don't retry it. But here's what the law actually is. Go figure out how you want to deal with this. The, the appellate courts will also punt on that. But comparing this situation to Google, Google v. Oracle Kirk, um, I've, I have concerns for the plaintiff. Well, I think the one thing to really keep in mind about this, and again, we, we mentioned this earlier in the show, and I think it's important to me, more than likely this decision is going to be on procedural grounds. It's, you know, when we look at this as to what it is, this is an argument of was the burden met and did the right person have the burden? That doesn't mean either side wins or loses in the copyrightability. It's basically, did we determine this was or not copyrighted yeah. correctly? Um, and the answer to that question has a high likelihood, I think, of being no. Um, we didn't determine whether or not this was you know, done correctly in determining the copyrightability. Um, even if the ultimate determination stands as to mm -hmm. it is not copyrightable, that doesn't mean the methodology was determined correctly. So we can definitely get into that. But yeah, I, I disagree with Ben a little bit in conjunction with this because I think the... The thing that we get into here, you know, with this and, and exactly the question, if we start getting into the substance of is this copyrightable, I think we, we are starting to now look like Google. My take of it is, is I think the fact that this is not an API is actually going to become a relevant fact. I, I kind of hope so, because my I'll tell you, my hunch, my personal preference would be that uh, this is found copyrightable. Uh, to me, it's, it's conceptually similar to the Google v. Oracle case. Um, except that here, the defendant is not even accused of actual copying. Google was, and they, they admitted it. Uh, Google also had some pretty bad internal correspondence, I believe, in that case, where they kind of acknowledged that they were skirting the line. Um, we have some literal infringement, potentially, there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but here, um, the defendant wrote a processing engine, the implementing code, programmed to interpret keywords in the same way. I can see a court looking at that and saying, well, this is even weaker than Google v. Oracle. If that's a fair use, then this is, too. Although, notice fair use wasn't really heavily argued uh, in the in the, the briefing. Um, I you know I've been... I have been and still am critical of the Google v. Oracle decision to the extent that it overlooked the nature of the copyright. You heard us talk before about literal versus uh, sequence structure and organization. Uh, the SSO aspects of that case, in my opinion, were completely overlooked throughout the entire process. Um, the Supreme Court didn't touch on it much. The uh, briefing didn't much. The Amici briefing didn't much. Um, it didn't really seem to play in at all, but I thought that was really the, the whole turning point of the whole thing. I don't know if that issue was just not properly before the court or uh, I guess it was though, because that, that is the copyright. And normally yeah. that's what you start with. What is the copyright and was it infringed? And um, the, uh, the, the, fair, the fair use factor analysis in Google v. Oracle basically gave no uh, consideration of that element at all. It's mentioned briefly yeah. at one point, um, but otherwise um, uh, largely ignored. And as a former developer, I am pretty sympathetic to the idea that the API involves a lot of creative effort. And remember, Google v. Oracle, Google won on fair use, not on copyrightability, yes. although the court threw some shade at whether they thought it should be copyrightable at all, which I, I worry about because if you've written a, a program before, you know, if, if you asked 100 programmers, would you rather be tasked with writing the API or letting somebody else write the API and you write the implementing code? Which one is, is more difficult? Now, the implementing code is probably more work overall, but once someone tells me what the API is to math.cosine, how much creativity is involved in writing yeah. a cosine function? You know, yeah. Once someone decides what input you're going to get, what the output has to be, you just got to find a way to get from A to B. Now, for some things, that's complicated, but for most like consumer-grade software, it's really not that hard. It's a matter of just putting in the grunt work and getting it done. 
Designing the API is, to me, where a lot of the creativity comes in. You've got to figure out how to make it usable, memorable. Yep. All the reasons Google didn't want to write their own and stole somebody else's instead, uh, you know, which what I always thought was an oddity of that case, that they said, oh, this, it's so easy to do. It's just an API. It's not copyrightable. Okay, if it's so easy, why didn't you just do it then? Why did you steal yeah. somebody else's? So um, I, you know, I think there's a lot that goes into that. I think there's a, a popular misperception that developing that API uh, does not involve much creative effort. Um, SAS is clearly sensitive to that because their briefings really um, emphasize how much effort and creativity and uh, thought goes into that. Um, so I don't think it would lose on lack of creativity grounds. Um, there is an argument for functionality. Uh, that was also not really taken up in the Google v. Oracle case. So we're still kind of in a no-man's land yeah. on copyright eligibility. That's the reason I think that this case is going to be a little bit different, I think, than potential Google v. Oracle. I, I look at it and say I think the Google versus Oracle case, in some sense, the fair use argument clouded everything else. And it's what we talked about in the episode. Yeah. They decided fair use without actually deciding whether or not fair use was necessary um, and sort of dodged the underlying issue, which is a, a weird finding. Yeah, it's an unusual way to go about it. Yeah, and, and in this case, the thing is, is we don't really seem to have a lot of the fair use argument. And we also don't have, and, and I point out the fact, this isn't an API, because I think the fact that that was an API and the idea that people sort of, outside people are sort of expected to use APIs, mm -hmm. in some sense, clouded got into the fair use issue. In this case, we're really talking about SSO. I mean, that's, that's really what this case is about, is this pure SSO. And so I look at it very distinctly as I can see this as a place where an appeals court can very quickly say no, the Google case is distinguishable from this um, because they didn't get into it. We're essentially are going to explore the question that the Supreme Court left. And from that point of view, if you look at it and say, we do want to explore the question the Supreme Court left open, we need a better fact record. Yeah. Um, and so that's the reason I look at this and kind of say, yes, I can believe this case is going to go to the idea that they need a better fact record is precisely because of the fact that they're not going to say Google versus Oracle is binding. They're going to look at it and say that case is limited to its facts, as the Supreme Court said. And so, therefore, we need to decide the piece that was missed. And I think that's why a lot of people are also looking at this and saying this could be the next Google versus Oracle, yeah. is because, in some sense, this case isn't clouded by the API, isn't clouded by the fair use. We're talking about really pure SSO being copied. Now, the, the complicating factor in this case is we lack literal copying. Yes. Yeah, that's going to make it more difficult. So, but that, but again, that maybe forces the court, I guess it doesn't really force them into the SSO territory, but that's... I was looking at the SSO issues too. Even in the briefing here, there's not a lot of focus on the fact that it is an SSO copyright. Um, I think another problem they have is because the copyright is to sort of this collection of keywords and how they're used for this interface, um, that's that's a, a lighter copyright than like an API that's actually written out and I can say, here's my 80,000 lines of yeah. code, and by the way, you took them all. Here I've got, here's my collection of, you know, a, a, even a big programming language. It generally doesn't have more than a couple of dozen keywords, so... Is it the collection of keywords? Is it the specific, like a document with the specification for the input format? I think defining what the copyright is here is going to be more challenging for SAS. But I also like your point about how this isn't a situation where SAS opened up the API for uh, competitors, you know, uh, to, to use. Well, you know, Java was willing to license this to, yeah. to Google for use. This is it's it's this is more truly a user interface, which is the analogy that the Supreme Court wanted to use for uh, the Google v. Oracle case and saying it's a user interface. I thought that was strained, uh, but here it is more of a user yeah. interface. It is an interface designed for users of the system uh, to to use the functionality. So um, that that case may show up here as well. I guess I would say what I would like to see happen here at a minimum is that there is no categorical holding 
that this type of thing is categorically ineligible. It may be that this particular one is, is not copyrightable, uh, but I really would like to see the courts avoid a categorical ruling, yep. which unfortunately is what I thought the Supreme Court was, was leading towards. Yeah, I think the, the one advantage that we do have is I think the courts are starting to realize that the danger in any kind of categorical ruling in conjunction with computer software is this area is really complex. As we talked about at the beginning of this, I and mean, we have 100 page briefs you know, in conjunction with this case. Just understanding exactly how these things work takes a lot of uh, takes a lot of work in and of itself, and so I think we see courts starting to look at these things potentially and look at them and say, "Hey, there's a lot of things that the copyright law may not necessarily be really well adapted to jump on right now. We need to adapt it. We need to adapt slowly, and that's normally the way courts work. They yeah. tend to adapt very incrementally, slowly, very incrementally. Where they look at it and say, "Okay, in this particular fact situation, let's do this." It's not a categorical type you know, determination. I think the the thing we we are likely to see in this is, and again, let's assume it does get remanded. Let's assume that's the the outcome. Is this is sent down to the district court for more determination? This is very likely a Supreme Court case. In the idea that this is one of the things you bump into a lot of times in Supreme Court cases is they don't go straight to the Supreme Court. They go, you know, they have a district court hearing. They go to an appeals court. It's remanded back to the district court. It goes back to the appeals court. It's remanded back to the district court. It goes to the appeals court. It goes to the Supreme Court. Uh, this is a case that can very easily have that because we are arguing about these procedural issues. And a lot of times those are the cases that do make it to the Supreme Court is they have a lot of procedural issues bounced around in the background. There, there's a lot of determinations of what needs to be done on procedure that is then done because then that gives it a lot of record for the Supreme Court to look at the procedure and not just say, what should the procedure be, but where did you do it right or wrong, which gives a lot more teaching. And so I think you see the Supreme Court likes to take cases that have procedural issues, and this is a procedural issue, regardless of whether or not we look at this thing as copyrightable, whether or not it's copyrightable ultimately is going to be a procedural issue. Well, and let me also boil down to whether there's a circuit split. Uh, what you often have is the, the trial courts in the federal court system, the precedent they follow is, of course, the Supreme Court, but um, often the Supreme Court's never ruled on a particular issue, and I am not going to be surprised if I learn that they've never ruled on burden <laughs> of proof in copyright yeah, sure uh, eligibility <laughs> cases. So uh, that's probably never been before them, and at, you know, absent that, you go to the appellate court for the circuit that your court is in. This came from Texas, which is the fifth, fifth circuit. Um, so, you know, the fifth circuit may have an appellate court that has ruled on this a certain way, but the ninth circuit may have ruled differently. The second circuit may have ruled differently. And what will sometimes happen is when you've got a circuit split that's creating problems with forum shopping, suing in specific places, uh, overwhelming court systems to uh, abuse favorable procedural precedent, the Supreme Court will sometimes take those up to harmonize and, and clear up that ambiguity so that we have the same law nationwide, which is one of the reasons for having a federal legal system so that we have yeah. uniform law. Uh, the the fact is we don't. Uh, the law differs from place to place, even in federal court, under federal statutes, uh, and the court does like to clean those things up. So this may boil down to that as well. Uh, one, whether the Fifth Circuit deals with this in a way that the court finds to be okay. If if it does, they may uh, decline certiorari, which, although that's not a ruling, it is a hint. It the, is, court, yeah. the court is pretty much fine with how it turned out. Um, and then, uh, but if not, they may take it up and resolve this and explain how this burden shifting is, is supposed to work. That's what I think to keep in mind with this is when we talk about the idea of there being sort of, you know, a decision by the Supreme Court, that a Supreme Court can make a decision by the very act of not making a decision. Yeah. Um, and yeah. that is an important thing to keep in mind is that the Supreme Court denying cases uh, gives you an indication of the fact that they think they came out right. Um, you know, they tend to take cases that they think came out wrong, you know, for that, for that reason, or they take cases exactly where it is, where it's, it may not be exactly that they think this one's wrong, but you have two cases who have, you know, 
are literally in complete disagreement. Mm-hmm. Okay, we take whichever one's the second one to create the disagreement because the first one's done, so we can't take it now. We've so seen them do that in copyright yeah. recently, too. There was a circuit split over whether you have to have a copyright registration to file a copyright that lawsuit. Was a major circuit split. Yeah, yeah. a major circuit split. Uh, some circuits said no. Some said you just have to have an application on file. And the Supreme Court took it up and answered the question. You yeah. know? So they've actually done a lot of this lately, so I will not be surprised if they, they keep doing more of it. Yeah, it's a very good place, actually, for the Supreme Court to write law. And it's actually a place that there's oftentimes a lot of amici MSI briefs written by lawyers mm-hmm. is because when you have those kind of circuit splits like that, it's the, we don't know what the law is. We need you to clarify what the law is. And in, in many that's the perfect thing for the Supreme Court because you can have no split at the circuit the Supreme Court. There is one Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. It, it, once it says what it says, that is the law. And to overturn it, the Supreme Court has to overturn it in the future. And that has to be expressly overturned. So it's one of those things where, you know, when you have those kind of circuit splits, you oftentimes get cases where they, they, they go for certiori and you'll then have, you know, a number of MCI briefs come in that'll say this needs to be taken to resolve this issue because we simply need clarity. And a lot of the lawyers actually arguing that are basically saying, we don't care what the outcome is, we simply need clarity so we know what it is for all future activities. Let's hit on one more issue here real quick that's going to bear into our next episode as well, and that is this filtration analysis. In software in particular, they go through this um, abstraction filtration process where they try to figure out what is the actual copyright, filtering out all the stuff that you cannot copyright. Um, and this, you know, in this case, it, if, if the copyright, so at this, at this point, we're not 100% sure what the copyright is. Yeah, and that's really the dispute in this case is what is the copyright Yeah, here? I don't it think we even got that far. Correctly. Yeah, the, the, so I mean, that was, that was the holding from that, that copyrightability hearing is what is the copyright? Uh, plain if you didn't even explain what it was coherently, so you lose. Um, but uh, presuming that they are able to explain it, and, and it winds up being basically this collection of keywords and the formatting and input syntax, um, this kind of gets us into a weird area about collective copyrights, uh, which we're going to talk about in our next episode as well. Uh, collective copyrights are where you can either take a collection of things that are otherwise not copyrightable, like a phone number or an address, uh, and then collect and organize them into a database, and then you can then acquire a copyright on the selection and arrangement of the copyrighted elements. Again, sequence structure organization copyright. Yep. So a phone book can be copyrighted even though nobody's individual phone number is. Uh, likewise, you can take existing things that are copyrighted separately, independent works, and you can get an additional copyright on the collection of them. The classic example of that is a newspaper, a magazine, something that's got lots of different works in it. Yep. Um, you also get into like collections of short stories or interesting yeah, enough musical anthologies, albums. things like that. Yeah, musical, musical albums are like that too. Uh, the Copyright Office has various procedures for doing this for those types of works. Um, those procedures are a little behind. You might think of like a blog or say a podcast as being one of those things. <laughs> uh, but there are currently no procedures at the Patent Office for, for doing that for a lot of different types of works. Uh, they are working on updating that. It's just, uh, it's, you know, the, the Copyright Office is part of the legislative branch. Um, it doesn't get funded as well as it should. <laughs> it also just it doesn't move nearly as fast as the trademark office or the patent office yeah. do. <laughs> yeah. Um, so anyway, uh, just bear, bear that in the back of your mind, this idea of collective copyrights, because that is going to come into play in our next episode. Yep. That's all we're going to say about that for right now. <laughs> all right. Uh, so I think that's all for uh, this time. Um, so coming up, we've got, um, at this point, you will have heard several of Kirk's Edamame episodes, possibly <laughs> one of mine if I ever get around to recording one. Sorry for me doing all, you know, these science fiction things, but there was all sorts of science fiction stuff I wanted to talk about. I haven't gotten to listen to two of them yet because they're Star Wars things, and I don't want to spoil anything. So I just went through them to, to remove, like, a, a couple, like, random bird sounds and stuff. That was about it. <laughs> that's the problem with recording outside. 
Uh, and then uh, we'll have you have the rewind episode this episode, and then we'll probably get back to more more traditional episodes uh, in the near future. Um, so uh, check out our website, lggpodcast.com. It has links to the platforms. Oh, wait, no, it doesn't right now. I took those down. I got to put those back in. <laughs> check out the website. It is a link to our episodes, at least. Um, get in touch with us on Twitter, Facebook, by email. Subscribe to this podcast. Give us a review. Help new listeners find us. Oh, also, um, as of today, it is uh, September 7th. Um, for whatever reason, we have had an enormous number of new listeners and downloads from the nation of India. So, oh, cool. Hello, India. Welcome. <laughs> we see you. Uh, nice to have you. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Benjamin Siders, and Kirk is at KirkDMN. That's all for today. We'll see you next time. Lorem, play us out. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by Lewis Rice LLC, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. This podcast was produced and recorded in St. Louis, Missouri. 